Thank you, Kelly. That uh, song carries a deep message. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 20. Luke chapter 20 and verse number 27. The question of what happens after we die is a question that's relevant to everyone. The question becomes intensely significant when faced with the death of a loved one or when we are facing the stark reality of our own death. There are basically two groups of people in the world. The first group is made up of those who believe this life is all there is. We live, we die, and that's all there is. Most major religions have some notion of life beyond the grave. Jesus taught that there will be a time of judgment and reward followed by eternal life commensurate with the results of that judgment. As Jesus taught in the temple, one group after another have come and tried to take him to task. First, there are those who come to question his authority to cleanse the temple and to continue to teach in it daily. He defeated them with a counter question. He said, first you tell me, was the baptism of John from God or from men? And when they refused to answer, neither did he answer them. Next came those with a deadly political question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he defeated them by asking for a coin and receiving a Daenerys and seeing that it bear, bore the image of Caesar, he said, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God. Now in verse number 27, we are introduced to one last group, the Sadducees, who have decided that they would have to show the others how to put Jesus in his place. We look first of all at the question as it comes in verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother should take a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. And the third took her and in like manner the seven also and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died. And here's the question in verse 33. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she become? For all seven have had her as a wife. Luke helps us to understand that the Sadducees, what they're asking by what they say when he tells us in verse 27 that they deny that there is a resurrection. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 23 and verse 8, there is a statement that the Sadducees did not believe in angels or spirits either. In fact, they were mainly a political group, although they did control the office of the high priest. 
they seemed to feel that the only books that applied to their lives were the first five books of the Old Testament. At the heart of this trick question was the custom called Leviterate marriage. According to this custom, if a man's married brother died without leaving an heir, he must marry the widow for the the explicit purpose of producing a son to carry on the family name. But as we look at the question that they brought to Jesus, we should note in their question of the one bride and seven brothers that there was no real search for truth. The Sadducees did not expect an answer and they didn't really want one. They were asking Jesus about something in which they did not believe. In fact, they hoped to stump Jesus and thus demonstrate how foolish the, the idea of resurrection from the dead is, that it is indeed unbiblical and impractical. The problem presented in a form of a question is a sham because the issue, but the issue that it raises is not. Is there an afterlife? Will people really be raised from the dead? Is the idea of life after death just some sort of Christian escapism? Why don't Christians just face the truth that this life is all there is? Perhaps you have talked to people over the years and you have had them raise some of those very questions because the skeptics of our age still raise those questions. And the Sadducees were just first century skeptics who did not believe in life after death. They said that life ended at death. There is little doubt that the Sadducees just considered themselves hardcore realists who had to combat this nonsense about resurrection. But perhaps at least part of the answer is the Sadducees were so comfortable in their day-to-day lives that they were not concerned with an afterlife. And that's true of most Americans today as well. We are so comfortable in our day-to-day lives that we tend to forget that our ultimate hope is heaven. In fact, when was the last time that you even thought about where you were going to spend eternity? The truth is that everyone is one day closer to eternity than you were yesterday. Someone has said, Death is a subject about which people spend a lifetime trying not to think about. But death is an inevitable experience that unless the Lord returns, we will all face one day. President Eisenhower said, I am interested in eternity because I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. Let's look at the answer that Jesus begins to give in verse number 34. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. According to Matthew's account, Jesus rebuked the Sadducees and said, 
you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus, first of all, said they didn't understand the true nature of the afterlife. So Jesus began his answer by drawing an important distinction here between the present age and the age to come. If you look back at, with me at the verse 34 and 35, I'd invite you to underline the two phrases that you find there. Jesus divides it into two time frames. First of all, this age in verse 34, that is the present age, and that age, verse 35, and that is the age to come. And it's described in a very different way from the present age. The kingdom of God or the afterlife described as that age will be totally different from the way things are in this age. Since the Sadducees had asked about relationships in the next life based on their understanding of relationships in this life, Jesus explained the difference. Jesus shares with his listeners some great truths about life eternal. First of all, there is a truth about entrance. Not everybody is going. The second truth that Jesus shares about the kingdom of heaven is not that everybody is going there. Verse 35 says, But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead. Here, more is implied than actually stated, but the principle is not everybody will be resurrected into everlasting life in heaven. The souls of unbelievers are now remaining in Hades awaiting the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 19. Those who are God's people are now presently with God. If some are to be counted worthy, then it follows that some will not. This verse emphasizes that Jesus is talking about those who are saved, not everyone who dies. Notice the verse says the resurrection from the dead, not the resurrection of the dead. Now that may not seem to be such a significant difference, but it does make a difference in those two prepositions, how they're carried out. For everyone will experience resurrection of the dead. Man was created an eternal being, and he is going to spend eternity somewhere. Resurrection from among the dead refers only to those who are raised to eternal life. He not only talks about the truth about entrance, he talks about the truth about marriage. Jesus tells that in the, in the kingdom of heaven, relationships will not operate on the same level as they do here. It will operate on a different plane than they do in this life. There is therefore no marriage in that age. He says, neither marry nor are they given in marriage. The point was that life in the eternal state is more than just an extension of this life. The Jews of Jesus' day thought the kingdom of heaven was only a continuation of the good things in this life. He did not say that we would not know our present wife or husband in the age to come, but rather that the relationship would be different. We're not told enough about life and the world beyond to express it in great detail, but we can understand a few principles. First, family relationships will still exist 
in the world beyond. The rich man, Jesus described in Luke chapter 16, in the afterlife was still aware of his family relationships and that the glory of heaven will outshine everything else that is including our family relationships now. There's also a truth about immortality. Jesus identifies the quality of life when he says, neither will they die anymore. It is eternal life. Notice that Jesus did not say they will not die, but he says they cannot die. Here Jesus uses the angels to make his point about immortality. Saying in verse 36, nor can they die anymore for they are equal of the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. One point worthy of taking notice of Jesus, he said angels are real. Jesus' use of angels is a, a double thrust since the Sadducees denied their existence. Jesus says they are equal to angels. And unfortunately, because some of the modern translations render that phrase, and they shall be like angels, there are those who are confused. At least one study states that 15% of Christians thought that angels were deceased humans. So let me clarify something before I go on. If you are not now an angel, you will not be one there either. Angels are created beings, not humans, who have died and are now being rewarded. Angels are not human beings like Clarence in the old movie classic, It's a Wonderful Life, who are trying to earn their wings. So how are we like angels then? The main idea is that we'll be like angels in the fact that marriage is not a part of their life. However, the redeemed will also be like the angels in heaven, seeing, serving, and praising God. Like angels, equally deathless, equally glorified, equally eternal. As far as our bodies go, they too will be resurrected in a glorified form. Our bodies, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, will be raised imperishable. You, you, not just your soul, you will be resurrected. That means your individuality will be preserved in eternity. You will recognize your loved ones and they will recognize you. Those things that made us unique as individuals in this life will be retained. And when we see our loved ones again, their bodies will be in their glorious potential. But still, their bodies, their personality will be at its fullest. Their wit, their charm, their tenacity, their love will somehow be enhanced. Our Lord's resurrected body was the same as before his death, and yet it was different. His friends recognized him. They even touched him. He could eat food, and yet he could also walk through closed doors and change his appearance. There is also a truth about paternity. He said in verse 36, and the sons of God being the sons of the resurrection. God will raise up his children. We are first his children by rebirth. 
in answering Nicodemus' question to Jesus in John chapter 3, he said, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what do we need to do? Our first birth gave us physical life. The new birth gives us spiritual life and membership in God's family. The only way we can come to God and experience what it means to be born again is through the repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. First, we must admit our sin. We must ask for forgiveness of that sin and repent and place our faith in the finished work of Jesus at Calvary. God makes us thereby a new person. The Bible says all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be the children of God. We are his children by rebirth. We are also his children by adoption. Galatians 4, 5 is important to us here. But notice this verse. It says to redeem those who are under the law that they might receive the adoption as sons. There was no process for adoption in the ancient Jewish world. If a man died, his brother automatically became the head of his household. So there was no need for a legal adoption process. The word adoption, during the time and context in which the Apostle Paul spoke, referred to the Roman process of adoption. And it's such a wonderful picture, actually. In ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. When a child was born biologically, the parents had the option of disowning that child for a variety of reasons, but not so if that child was adopted. If a child was adopted in Rome, adopting a child meant the child was freely chosen by the parents, desiring to be their parents, and secondly, the child would be a permanent part of the family. The parents could never disown an adopted child. And an adopted child was given the rights and responsibilities of a child. Being adopted made someone an heir of their father and a joint heir in the possessions, and they were fully united to him. Now notice with me the proof. To prove the point of the resurrection from the dead, he wanted to prove to the Sadducees that this was a biblical idea. And there is clearly a number of Old Testament texts that Jesus could have used to prove his point, to, cook, to prove that there is a belief in the resurrection. Remember, Matthew's account said that Jesus rebuked the Sadducees saying, you are wrong because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus first dealt with the fact that they didn't understand the true nature of the afterlife. Now he deals with the second part, that they don't understand the power of God. God has the power to raise the dead. And many Old Testament figures attest to that very thing. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who Dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herb. The prophet Daniel wrote, And many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall be awake, 
some to everlasting life, to shame and everlast, some to everlasting shame and contempt. Perhaps best known, remembered of all of the Old Testament quotes is that from Job when he wrote, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold and not another, how, many, how my heart yearns within me. But since the, old, since the Sadducees didn't believe anything except the first five books of the Old Testament, Jesus now turns to those that they do approve, to Moses himself, and what he said in the book of Exodus, chapter 3 and verse 6. Jesus said, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus reasons that when God stated in the present tense, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, it makes no sense if they were not presently alive. Jesus says, I am. He didn't say, I was. It is the living God who is greater than death who is the one who has assured us that mankind will be raised from the dead, some to their rewards and others to judgment. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament patriarchs understood that when he wrote, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but of having seen afar off were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seem a homeland. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. For that he also received him in a figurative sense. Now let's look at the result. <clears throat> In verse 39, then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. The hate that the scribes and Pharisees felt for Jesus was temporarily superseded by their despite of the Sadducees. And so they tell Jesus he did a good job answering the question. But in fact, they were astonished at what Jesus had said about eternal life. Here's the truth. Only one person can speak with authority about life after death. And that one person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has ever died, went into the afterlife, and returned to this life. No matter what may, some may say about their near-death experiences, Jesus is the only one I would trust. In conclusion, let me just say there are a number of areas in life in which you can afford to make mistakes. In the area of finances, we can make mistakes with the hope that we will 
learn from our errors and do better next time. Athletes can afford to make a mistake during a contest because of the possibility in the next game they'll get it right. I won't mention the Razorbacks at this point. But in the question of eternity, no one can afford to be wrong. In this arena, there is no second chance. The mistakes that the Sadducees were making was that they were gambling with their souls. And the Lord knew then, and according to Mark chapter 12, verse 27, he told them so. He said, you have made a serious error. Don't make that error today. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your guidance and direction in our service and in this time of invitation. It may be that there's someone wrestling with their decision about following Jesus. I pray that you would help them this morning to understand this really is something that you can't afford to be wrong about. It's even something you can't afford to postpone. Father, if there's one who's never accepted you as their personal Lord and Savior, then I pray today that they might do that in this place. They might understand that they must repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus, that he's already paid the penalty for their sin on the cross of Calvary. For those of us who are saved, I pray that we'd live in the light of that decision. Help us, Lord, as we walk out into this world where men and women deny that there's anything beyond this life, that this is all there is, and you just have to do the best you can. Help us to be able to convey to them that there is more, much more. In fact, the life beyond here is more in almost every conceivable way. Father, I pray for your direction and guidance and our invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to have a short invitation. If you're here this morning, God's spoken to you in some way, then I'd encourage you to come. This is between you and God. It has nothing to do with me as the preacher or even with this church. It's a decision between you and God. Brother James is going to be here. You need to make a decision. Would you come right now while we sing?